Well, good morning again. We uh, come now to uh, hear from God's Word uh, from Genesis chapter 3. So turn with me, if you would, in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 3. And our, our sermon text is going to be Genesis 3, verses 6 through 24. But I'm going to go ahead and read the whole chapter. And uh, we looked at the first six verses of Genesis 3 last week. We're going to look at kind of the chapter as a whole, both this week and next. But before I read Genesis 3, let's pray together. Father, we thank you again that we have the, the, the privilege to come to you. Uh, we thank you again for your word, which uh, speaks to us what is true and right and good, and most of all speaks to us of Jesus and of the gospel and of your grace, that we might receive it and believe it and rest in it. So, Father, we pray that you would uh, show up in this moment, that you would meet with us by your Spirit. And uh, we confess just our, our own uh, impotence and ignorance to, to do anything good in this moment. Uh, I can't preach in a way that will change people's hearts. And we can't hear in a way so that we will be transformed apart from the power and the work of your Spirit. And so we pray that you would pour out your Spirit on us me as I speak, all of us as we hear, that we would be affected by your word, that your word would, would grip us, would have its way with us, would transform us and conform us to the image of our Savior Jesus. Father, pour out your spirit to those ends, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Again, Genesis chapter 3, we'll go ahead and read the whole chapter. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she, gave also some, also, she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. 
To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Well, it has been suggested that the serpent was right. Now, I'm fairly confident that there have been any number of people suggesting this for any number of reasons, but I will just give you one example. New York native Jewish lawyer Alan Dershowitz assumes that Satan was right on two points. First, that Adam and Eve would not die if they ate the tree, and second, that the tree of the knowledge of good and evil would be good for them and enable them to be all that God had made them to be. Reflecting on the fact that Adam and Eve did not immediately drop dead after eating the fruit, he said these things. He said, A wise judge often backs away from his initial threat, realizing that the violation does not really warrant the threatened punishment. If God himself realized he was wrong to threaten the harsh punishment of immediate death, then perhaps he became more understanding of the sin of Adam and Eve. He goes on, God, like some parents and judges, finds it less difficult to threaten than to carry out his threats, especially one that would destroy what he created. Moreover, in the case of Adam and Eve, there was a mitigating circumstance. The serpent did, after all, beguile Eve, who in turn enticed Adam. Finally, he says, maybe God realized that he was acting out of self-interest in denying to those he had created in his own image the most important aspect of that divine image, namely the continuing quest for knowledge. Now, I will leave you to speculate how Dershowitz's understanding of divine justice has shaped his own legal career, but the assumption is that Adam and Eve did not die that day, but actually matured, growing in beneficial knowledge of good and evil. Withholding such knowledge, uh, Dershowitz says, was selfish on God's part, and he himself clearly realized that, hence not following through with his threat. Well, that's one way to tell the story, but it is not the story that the Bible tells. 
What we find when we turn to Genesis 3 is that Adam and Eve immediately begin to experience death. And the knowledge that they gained was not even bittersweet. It was just bitter. I wonder why we still believe the serpent's lies after they have so obviously not panned out. Well, here's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to begin to, to, to give the lie to Satan's words, you shall not surely die. And we're going to look at the death that followed upon sin and the grace that follows in Jesus. And there are four major aspects of death seen in this passage. And we're going to, we're going to look at the first two of them this morning and the second two next week. And so there are four aspects total to the death in this passage. There's psychological breakdown and shame. There's relational breakdown and blame. There's a vocational breakdown in pain. And then there is a spiritual breakdown, ultimately ending in exile. But like I said, this morning we're just going to look at the first two, the psychological and the relational. And next week we will continue with the vocational and the spiritual. Now, if that sounds a bit depressing, looking at the various aspects of death uh, seen in this passage, you know, spending two whole weeks focused on death, uh, along the way, don't worry, we will also look at the glory and the reconciliation and the triumph and the restoration that is ours in Christ. So first, the psychological breakdown. How comfortable do you feel in your own skin? You are fearfully and wonderfully made, and yet many of us aren't comfortable at all. We are self-conscious and embarrassed and ashamed. Now, there are many reasons for this, and, and part of it is certainly the, the relational or social breakdown, which we'll talk about in a minute, but part of it is our, our own psychological breakdown. We feel shame because we are at war within ourselves. Now, now, we're in the middle of a, a, the story of humanity's descent into sin. And last week, we looked at temptation itself, Satan's strategies, undermining their relationship with God by questioning God's character, introducing ambiguity through half-truths and innuendos, minimizing the consequences, and appealing to ambition, creating in man an, an attitude of rivalry with God rather than dependence upon him. Then we looked at sin's logic uh, that, that, that points Eve away from God and to creation as the source of life. And sin's answer to the question, what is best for me, becomes when you can be right and feel good and have more and rise above and stand strong through created things rather than the creator. And so Satan drives a wedge between humanity and God, and sin then looks to created things rather than to the creator. And as a result, Eve declares her independence, taking the fruit and eating and giving some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Now, th those who think that Satan was telling the truth and that God's threats were empty do not grasp the clear implications of what happens next. Hebrew narrative uh, more often shows rather than tells. The way that Hebrew narrative works, it, it shows you the main points rather than pontificating on them. It, it, it doesn't give us a series of propositions. It gives us a story, and we are meant to draw conclusions from the story. And so Adam and Eve eat the fruit, and verse 7 says this, Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. 
Now, the initial phrase at first seems as if Satan's words were true. The eyes of both were opened. And that is exactly what Satan said would happen. Verse 5, Satan said, God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. But is this the kind of eye-opening that they expected? It's more like biting into a, a, a juicy-looking piece of fruit only to realize it's plastic, or, or worse, that it's filled with sawdust. Verse 7, Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Uh, now, now, for this to make sense, we have to go back to chapter 2, verse 25. The, the last verse in chapter 2 says, And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Adam and Eve knew already that they were not clothed, but something has changed from 2.25 to 3.7. The writer leaves us to connect the dots that shame has entered in. Whereas Adam and Eve had no reason to be ashamed before, now their conscience bears witness against them. They realize there is something wrong with me. Suddenly there is this internal conflict, my conscience bearing witness against me. Now people speculate on, well, well why clothes, right? What's up with the fig leaves? Well, they want to hide. Clothes are one way of doing that. I think what's going on is this. Adam and Eve want to hide their shame and regain glory. Clothing is an attempt to regain glory. I mean, think, think about the clothing industry today. They don't sell clothes. Right? They sell cool or dignity or sex appeal or playfulness or maturity or glory. Right? I can be who I want to be. I can look how I want to look. Regardless of what's going on on the inside, I can be glorious on the outside if only I dress in the right way. Clothing is a means of regaining glory. And I say regaining on purpose, right? Adam and Eve were created in the image of God. Sin tarnished that image, which means when Adam and Eve sinned, they lost their glory. They became naked. Or let me put it another way. When, Adam, when God created Adam and Eve, they were clothed with glory, with righteousness, with the, the, the perfect image of God. When Adam and Eve sinned, they were unclothed. Again, they, they became naked, not physically, but in a more profound sense. And that, that's really the necessary implication when you compare 2.25 to 3.7. In 2.25, they were naked, a condition that in almost universal human experience brings shame throughout the rest of the Bible brings shame, but they were not ashamed. And then in 3.7, their eyes are, are opened. They know that they are naked, and they immediately seek to cover up. What has happened? Well, the, the, the physical nakedness was not, did not originally bring shame. So what happened? They have become naked in a new sense because now they have something to hide. Now their sin is exposed. They have lost their clothes. Their status symbol of created glory has be, been defiled. We have spent the rest of human history trying to cover ourselves with fig leaves, trying to cover up our shame, trying to hide. 
And think about what, what are the fig leaves that we use? Well, we, we excuse our sin or we minimize our sin or we blame others for our sin. We hide our internal thoughts. We act one way in private and another in public. All various ways of covering, of hiding, of making sure you don't see what's going on inside. We seek to regain status and position and recognition, which often happens through clothing, right? A, a uniform, a, a power suit, a badge, a crown, the right hairstyle or makeup or designer body, right? Whatever we might use to, to cover our shame and restore our glory. And yet we do need a covering, right? The impulse is right. All of Scripture testifies to this, that in the end, uh, th this chapter, in the end of this chapter, God makes garments of skin and clothes Adam and Eve. Their sin and shame do need to be covered. David recognized this when he tried to cover his own sin, and it didn't work out. Uh, in Psalm 32, verses 3 and 4, he says, For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. David was, was being silent about his sin, and he felt the weight of guilt and shame on him. But when he uncovered his sin, God covered it over. Uh, Psalm 32, verse 5, I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Or verses 1 and 2 of that psalm, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. You see, when we, when we hold on to our sin, when we try to hide when we cover it over with fig leaves or excuses, the guilt and shame weigh on us. They are a burden. But when we confess our sin, when we, when we open up about it, God covers it over. He forgives and the burden of guilt is removed. And so the rest of Scripture testifies to the, the value and importance of being clothed. Joseph is given a robe, a garment, of many colors, signifying his father's special love and so his status in the house. Pharaoh clothes Joseph in fine linen, a gold chain, a signet ring, signifying his position in Egypt. The high priests are given garments in Exodus 28 for beauty and for glory. God is restoring what was lost in the fall, again signifying their status in God's house. Joshua the high priest is wearing filthy garments and God removes them and says, I have taken away your sin. And then God has pure robes and a clean turban placed on him. The prodigal son, having alienated himself from his father's house, returns in shame. And what does the father do? He says, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. He restores his glory, his position in the house by clothing him. Jesus clothes himself in humanity. Now note, this is the reverse. He is God, but he takes on the form of a servant. On the night before he was betrayed, he, he strips himself naked, wraps himself in a towel, and washes his disciples' feet. He clothes himself in humility. And then he goes to the cross and dies naked. He is bearing our shame. Jesus dies naked, but he is raised 
in glory. Paul says of the resurrection body in 1 Corinthians 15, 43, it is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. Jesus' uh, very body now radiates His glory, His righteousness. And what does He then do for us who are naked and ashamed? He offers for us to share in His glory, to be clothed in His righteousness. Jesus removes our shame, bears it in the cross, and then clothes us in glory. See, we need not be ashamed, brothers and sisters. That, that, that doesn't mean we don't need to be modest. We still live in a fallen world, but we need not be ashamed. Christ has taken our shame and clothed us in His glory. We, of course, await the resurrection when we will be further clothed, as Paul put it in 2 Corinthians 5, clothed with the resurrection body. We will one day be, as C.S. Lewis uh, fancifully described, the solid people in the great divorce. He says, some were naked, some robed, but the naked ones did not seem less adorned, and the robes did not disguise, and those who wore them the massive grandeur of muscle and the radiant smoothness of flesh. Or again, as he put it in the weight of glory, he said, we must remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person you can talk to may one day be a creature which if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship. See, one day we will be raised in resurrection bodies that will be glorious. But for those who are in, in Christ, right now we have been clothed with Christ's glory and we will be further clothed, which means we will be glorious. No shame, no fear, no discomfort, only worship of the risen Christ forever. Do you feel the, the, the weight of that now? Right? When, when we are self-conscious, when we fear being exposed, when we fear our sin being found out, though we have confessed and repented, when we fear being seen as a fraud because we are not all that we think we appear to be, we are still looking at our fallen selves and seeing no glory, brokenness, shame. But we are in Christ. Our identity is in Christ. Our clothing is in Christ. Our status is in Christ. We are raised with Him and seated with Him and have the hope of glory. What fear do we need to have of people seeing our brokenness? Now, we shouldn't be kind of spiritual exhibitionists, right, going around and spilling all of our deepest, darkest sins to everyone we see, but we do need to not be afraid, so afraid that we are unable to confess our sins to those closest to us. Your righteousness and glory is in Christ. Nothing you say, nothing you admit can diminish that. You are glorious in Him. You have nothing to be ashamed of. Now, I, I should at least mention, of course, that, that not all shame comes from our sin. Some shame comes from the sin of others. We are shamed by others. We feel dirty because of what they have done. And Christ bears that kind of shame as well. He was beaten. He was mocked. He was stripped naked. He bears our shame. And then He rises, overcoming even the shame imposed on Him. But in this passage, we see that sin brings this psychological breakdown. Our conscience bears witness against us. We become ashamed of our own selves. But Christ clothes us in glory. He makes us new and He promises us resurrection. So that's first, the, the psychological breakdown of sin. Second, the relational breakdown. 
You know, ask any young child why he hit his brother or why he called his sister names, and the answer will almost always come back, because he did this or because she did that. And the almost immediate consequence of sin is not only internal conflict and shame, but external conflict and the breakdown of human society. Uh, even the fig leaves themselves were not only because I feel ashamed, but because I don't want my shame to be exposed to you. Adam was not hiding his body from himself, but from Eve. And yet the breakdown goes beyond that. God comes to the garden and commentators almost always speculate that this was a normal thing with God, that, that he was regular, would regularly visit them in the garden. And, and, I, and I guess that could have been so. It, it fits the pattern of God meeting with his people in the most holy place. And yet at the same time, others have pointed out that the phrase cool of the day is more literally uh, the spirit of the day. And the spirit of the day could refer to the manner of the day of the Lord. That is, God is coming in judgment. Either way, though, whatever God's manner of approach, whether he is simply walking in the cool of the day or coming in the spirit of the day of the Lord, whatever his manner of approach, Adam and Eve hide from the presence of the Lord. And notice that God at this point asks questions. Uh, he doesn't immediately lay out judgment. He, he first does some investigation. Where are you? Who told you? Have you eaten? What have you done? God is a just judge, right, who, who gets all the facts, of course, like his seventh day rest, that, that wasn't for his sake, but for ours, so that we see his justice at work. But when God questions them, their response is to blame. When God says to Adam, have you eaten? Adam blames God and the woman in one sentence. Verse 12, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. Now, in chapter 2, verse 23, she was at last bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. And now Adam is ready to sell her out to get off. Sin came into the world and suddenly it is every man for himself. The sweet unity of Eden is no more. Adam knows his guilt, but his first instinct is to pass that guilt off on someone else. Now, uh, I, I should mention as we talk about guilt and shame that, that uh, there is a difference between guilt and shame. Adam and Eve experience both, but they're not the same thing. Uh, guilt says, I've done something wrong. Shame says, I am something wrong. Guilt says, I am guilty. Shame says, I am dirty. Guilt says, my actions were bad. Shame says, I am bad. Adam and Eve try to cover themselves, to cover their shame, and they blame others to pass off their guilt. And the enduring cause of, of any breakdown in any relationship, whatever the initial cause might have been, the enduring cause is that no one is willing to take responsibility. Everyone passes off their guilt. No one accepts it. And the truth is, if both people in any conflict are willing to take responsibility for their actions, almost any conflict can be overcome. But again, to protect our righteousness and to protect our reputation, like our first parents, we pass the buck. We blame other people. We blame our circumstances. We blame brain chemistry. We blame family upbringing. We blame God. Because if I can blame you, my guilt is removed. This is how uh, Alan Dershowitz, you remember, got Adam and Eve off their charge of disobedience. He said there was a mitigating circumstance. The serpent did, after all, beguile Eve, who in turn enticed Adam. See, neither Adam nor Eve were at fault. The devil made them do it. 
they are no longer guilty. Right? Only the serpent is left to answer for his sins. If I can blame you, my guilt is removed. All of this is what makes Jesus' work so incredible. He is, in our, he, he is not, decidedly not, in our position. While we are estranged from God because of our sins, God has no error to own. He has no guilt of his own. But Jesus comes into the world as God in the flesh and takes on all the guilt. He owns it, right? He takes responsibility. He accepts the consequences. He bears the curse. At the cross, Jesus is declared guilty of blasphemy, the charge that was laid on him by the Sanhedrin. Uh, and, and his Jewish contemporaries said to Jesus at one point in John 10, 33, it is, it is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you being a man make yourself God. Now, how ironic that the one who was God was put to death for claiming to be God so that those who strove to be God might not die, but be reconciled to God in him. But it was not merely his bearing guilt that leads to our reconciliation, right? If, if Christ is not risen from the dead, Paul says, our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. Christ died on the cross as a guilty sinner in the presence of God. But, God, but Christ was vindicated in his resurrection. He rose as righteous Savior. Because of his intrinsic righteousness, death could not keep its hold on Jesus. God declares Jesus righteous in his resurrection from the dead. Because Christ was declared righteous in his resurrection, we can be declared righteous in him. By faith in Jesus, we are united to Jesus and so receive the Father's verdict given to his Son. Now, what does this mean in terms of human society and human relationships? Well, guilt led to blame and the breakdown of relationships in society. The most intimate of relationships in marriage instantly became a battleground. What does Jesus' work bearing our sin and rising as righteous mean for our relationships? Well, it means this, because Christ has taken my guilt and given me his righteousness, I have no need to blame. He's taken the sting out of guilt. I am righteous before the throne of grace, which means I can admit my sin. I can admit my guilt. I can admit my part in this conflict. I can own it and so pursue reconciliation. I don't need to be the right one here. I don't need to be seen as right here. Jesus reconciling us to God leads us to be able to reconcile with one another. You see, sin brings shame and guilt. That's what we see in Adam and Eve immediately after the fall. Death, shame, and guilt. Psychological breakdown, relational breakdown. That is true death. And it begins the moment they eat from the tree. When people say, well, Adam and Eve didn't really die that day, their definition of life is too weak and their definition of death is too narrow. Path of life is the path of righteousness. To step off that path is death. As the Proverbs testify, you know, Proverbs 14, 12, there is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. Or as uh, Proverbs puts it more picturesquely later on in Proverbs 9, uh, the woman folly is loud. She is seductive and knows nothing. She sits at the door of her house. She takes a seat on the highest places of the town, calling to those who pass by, who are going straight on their way. Whoever is simple, let him turn in here. And to him who lacks sense, she says, stolen water is sweet and the bread eaten in secret is pleasant. 
but he does not know that the dead are there, that her guests are in the depths of Sheol. You see, the Old Testament has this quite rich understanding of life and death. And the breakdown of the individual psyche and the breakdown of society is death, true death. Haven't you felt it? Right? Don't you know it? Whatever the doubters might say, whatever those who want to side with the serpent might say, death has come. We experience it every day. Sin brings guilt and shame, which is death. And so Jesus comes. He clothes himself in humanity and dies naked on the cross, bearing our shame. He dies as guilty before the Father, having been charged with claiming to be God. He dies for those who strive to be God, bearing our guilt and sin. Jesus rises glorious and righteous, taking up his place of honor at the Father's right hand. And now he offers for all who believe in him righteousness and glory. These are yours in Christ. When shame and guilt rear their ugly head, tell them, uh, tell them uh, that your shame has been covered. Your shame has been covered by the blood of Jesus. Your guilt has been removed. Your sins have been forgiven. That you are glorious and righteous in Him. And in that glory and righteousness, you stand therefore without guilt and unashamed. Let's pray and thank God that our Guilt has been removed and our shame has been covered in Jesus. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for the work of Jesus. We thank you that he has covered our shame with his glory, that he has removed our sin by his death on the cross for our sins. Uh, we thank you that uh, we can be in him, glorious and righteous. Uh, we thank you, Father, that those are gifts, gifts of your grace. Help us to remember them, to rest in them, to rejoice in them every day. To your honor and glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.